Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. What is up, podcast fam? Happy Monday. Hope you all had an amazing weekend. Let's jump right into this one. Today, my guest is Kenny Rosenblatt. Kenny is a seasoned entrepreneur and co-founder of Arcadium. Kenny also went to Syracuse. Shout out to Cuse. This man's story is wild. Kenny met his wife and co-founder at their old job. Yes, Kenny and his wife are co-founders of the same business, which is extremely rare which makes this story even more wild in my eyes. One night, they're on a date. They tried to go to an arcade in the city to play Miss Pac-Man to see who would be better at arcade games and couldn't find an arcade to go play in. So they decided, heck, we're going to take out our life savings, our 401ks, and we're going to go build an online arcade. And that is exactly what they did. The story is wild. You need to tune into this episode to hear this incredible entrepreneurial journey an amazing, amazing love story, and someone who's thoughtfully building his dream life. So many lessons and so much applicable advice. Before we jump into it, please take a moment to share this episode with a friend, subscribe to Bits of Gold, and tag us on your Instagram story if you find this episode valuable. With that being said, enjoy this episode with the one, the only, Kenny Rosenblatt. Well, Kenny, thank you so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast. So excited to have you on. I am so happy to be here. Let's do it. Awesome. I know I messaged you a few times on LinkedIn to get you on. And just to give you a little bit of context around really what inspired me to start the show, to really set the ground for some of the things that we'll hopefully discuss in our conversation today. I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. At age 14, I started my first business. And really, since a young age... Uh, my dad always was telling me, you know, there's sort of two roads in life that you can take. You can either help others build their dreams or you can have others help you build your dreams. And he was always sort of inspiring me and pushing me to pursue your dreams. And if you have an, an I, something you're deeply passionate about, start a business, try to make something of it. So at 14 years old, I love boxing, decided to really pursue that. And I started selling boxing equipment door to door, gym to gym. That was really my first, uh, let's call it real opportunity in doing something that I was deeply, deeply passionate about. Since then, I've went on to build various businesses and life threw a lot of curveballs my way. Uh, by age 25, I lost both my parents to rare cancers, my dad at 20, my mom at 25. And really what inspired me to start this show is life is so fragile. Each day is a gift, not a guarantee. And knowing that, I just really feel that it is our duty as humans to go out and build your dream life, whatever that may mean. That means you know, owning a farm upstate, building a business, running a marathon, being the best mom. That can take a lot of meaning to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And that's the message I want to get out and share, really using my story and the stories of other amazing individuals like yourself 
as a way to inspire people to go out and do just that. So with that, so excited to have you on to share your story today. I have so many questions now from uh, doing like some research ahead of the show. So just really uh, want to express my gratitude for you coming on today. Yeah. So thank you for having me. And let me just give you one quick story that my dad told me growing up. He said, if you ever start a business, just follow this one rule. And that rule is make more money than you spend. If you follow that rule, you will be okay. And you get to play offense and live to, you know, um, you know, keep going. So uh, that is the one rule that I've been following. And it's done pretty well for me. That's a good rule if you're going to go into business, right? I love to start these really at the beginning, wherever that is for you. Take me back to sort of where the beginning of your story starts. Oh, man. My story, I think, starts at childhood. I was never a good student, terrible student. I was just more interested in hanging with friends, making friends. And um, my style of learning is not one that I can just sit in the classroom, focus on a teacher and what they're saying, read a book and, you know, take a quiz or a test. That's not that way I operate. I am much too wound up and energized. So um, I just really struggled through school, you know, I was a C student pretty much my whole uh, life. And um, I knew that I had intelligence, but it just wasn't able to be, um, you know, captured in the traditional way of, of education. Because outside of school, I was always thinking about new ideas for businesses, new ideas to make money. And uh, I was a hustler, always been a hustler and, and never was afraid of hard work. So I think I recognized early on that I had some intelligence, but it wasn't being captured in the traditional educational systems. Yeah, that makes sense. Was there, do you have any early memories of like a hustle you did or something growing up where you're like, oh, like that was cool. That was fun. I mean, I've had every type of job you can think of. Um, I did a company presentation just showing them that I wasn't always the president or the CEO of a company. You know, I worked at yogurt stores. I worked as delivering newspapers. I was a delivery boy. I, you know, uh, stocked things at your local pharmacy. Uh, I've always had you know, a lot of hard work ethic. And I think one of the early things that I've learned was working for a, um, a place called Knights of Columbus, where they gave me a phone book and I just had to call people and ask for donations. And I learned how to sell over the phone just by making hundreds of phone calls a night. And, and those lessons really taught me how to deal with rejection, taught me how to deal with unique selling propositions. So early on, even in high school, I was learning those business lessons. That makes sense. So at what point along the journey did you realize like, hey, I'm gonna I know you had a you had like a a few jobs it seems after school. So at what point did you did you decide like I'm gonna go and pursue my own business? I I wanna hear how Arcadium came about. And I guess for those that are just tuning in, maybe you can also tell everyone what, what Arcadium is. Sure. So really quick, Arcadium is a game company. We make game content and we focus on games for grownups. So we're not making games for the Xbox or PS4. Uh, we're making games that uh, grownups like to play. Um, so these are brand safe, family friendly type of games. Think of word games and card games and things like that. And I started it 20 years ago, um, always been an entrepreneur, but never wanted to be like a serial entrepreneur. I didn't want to jump from business to business. I always wanted to build something for the long term. So 
the critical moment for me was I was working at a company called Onto Technologies, which was later purchased by Google. It was a, a video codec company. Um, so if you've ever watched a YouTube video, the way that that video displays on your machine is through a codec and uh, Onto was the developer of that. But the company was struggling and uh, I met my girlfriend at the time at that company and we were just talking about, um, you know, great business ideas and, you know, ways that we could potentially leave the business to start something new. And we were out on a date one night. Uh, we were talking about growing up and um, she had mentioned growing up and going to arcades and playing Miss Pac-Man. And I told her I would beat her in this Pac-Man. And she said, are we going to go for levels? Or are we going to go for score? And I said, let's go for score. We tried to find an arcade in New York City. We couldn't. And we said, let's go back. Uh, this was the year 1999. Let's go find a website to play. We couldn't find a website to play Miss Pac-Man. And we said, wouldn't this be a great idea for a company where you can play classic arcade games against your friends? And in 1999, that had never been done anywhere. So we quit our jobs. We took out uh, our 401ks, which had been maybe $11,000 total at the time, took a huge penalty on that. And we started Arcadium having no idea what to do or how to run a business, but we did it anyway. I have so many questions. I'm sitting here smiling ear to ear. So before you started the business, you started dating. That was one of uh, the big things in, in uh, researching a little bit about this leading up to this. So you started, you started dating beforehand. We started dating beforehand. And when we went to incorporate Arcadium, we went to the lawyer's office and they were like, you know, this is the worst idea ever, right? To start a company with somebody that you're dating. And we're like, we were madly in love. We knew we were destined to be with one another. So we just forged forward, even though everyone was saying it was a disaster uh, waiting to happen. But, you know, we're here 20 years later, three kids and just living our dream life. So um, that worked out. What about like close friends or parents? Did they say anything like, are you out of your mind? They all told us that it was very risky, but, um, you know, uh, I have never been afraid of risk and um, I always follow my passion and my gut. And if, um, you know, it felt great at the time, feels great today. But if it didn't turn out great, I would have dealt with it, you know, just like I deal with any adversity. I love that. So did you ever get to play um, some arcade game, Miss Pac-Man, to see who, who was better, who won? It's a constant battle in my family. We put we put an arcade machine in the Arcadium office with Miss Pac-Man, and it's a monthly battle. I think she is definitely on a on a tear lately. She's got me the last three or four games. <laughs> I love that. So before, how how old were you guys when you started? Uh, started Arcadium at twenty four. Okay, so you were you were really like a like kind of right out of school at the time. Were you thinking? Uh, were you just like ready to start your own business or were you like, do you have any doubts in regards to like, should I go work somewhere more? A lot of our listeners are, um, we get a lot of people who are like in their 20s, fresh out of college in their 30s, trying to figure out a direction to go, what they want to do with their life, etc. So I'm curious if we could just talk about that for a second. Sure. I was really blessed 
going back, I went to Syracuse University and um, I got kicked out of Syracuse University, right? So I was accepted into the arts and sciences program. I went to Syracuse. My first semester, I got, um, you know, I got put on academic probation. My second semester, I got all F's and a D, uh, which was like a 0.6 GPA, and they kicked me out. Um, so I then went to Onondaga Community College, and I took two buses to get there, trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with my life. I knew I didn't want to be a loser. I knew I didn't want to be a failure. So um, I went to Onondaga. I built my GPA back up, and the only school at Syracuse that would let me back in that was a new budding school was come. Uh, which now called the iSchool. Uh, it was called Information Sciences and Technology back in the day. So the iSchool let me back in um, and I fell in love with computers and the internet and all this stuff and you know ended up thriving in that type of environment because I wasn't just listening to lectures, I was actually building computers, taking them apart, you know, doing things like that that was more um, suitable to my learning style. Uh, but I tell you that because when I was at IST or the iSchool, I got a job right out of school at a company called Systems and Computer Technology Corporation. Uh, they didn't have a marketer back at the day to uh, to come up with a better name. Uh, that company is now owned by Oracle, but that company was a publicly traded company and really taught me how to be a professional and gave me some real skills, really well-run operations. I left that company to go to this new one called Onto, which was a dot bomb mess, right? No management, no idea, blew through $60 million. So I had this experience of seeing how a great company runs, how a poor company runs, and that gave me the confidence that I knew kind of the differences in starting my own business. So I wanted about four or five years of professional experience before I felt confident starting my own business. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned struggling in, in school. I guess when you found the high school, you started doing something that you were deeply passionate about. So it sounds at least. And it's funny how sometimes I see a lot of people, uh, myself included, I was not the best student, but the things that I really loved, I was able to hyper-focus and thrive on those things. Yeah, I just wanted to do the things that I was interested in. I was never interested in social studies. I was never interested in mythology. I was never interested in calculus. Yeah, makes complete sense. So when you first launched Arcadium, is that is that the name you always operated under? Yeah, we wanted to build a site, remember, where it was focused on games and you can play against your friends. And a feature we had was watching your friends play. So it's arcade and stadium mashed together where, you know, you were at a stadium, you know, think about esports 20 years before. So you take out your 401ks, you launch, how do things go? Oh, terrible. Terrible. <laughs> I mean, we called them our rice and beans years. Literally, we said, if we don't, you know, make it or raise capital in the first six months, we're going to go back and, and find real jobs. Three years later, literally three years later, we started taking a paycheck. We took no paycheck for three years. And I was putting up signs over New York City, Kenny, the computer guy will fix your printer. Kenny, the computer guy will get you a you know basic website, just bringing in any money I could to to get the company going. So you, you had some side hustles while you were uh... I had to. I had to pay rent. I had to you know feed myself and um, was living in New York City. Yeah. Tough place to live right out of school. Three years later, 
things start going a little bit better? Yeah, things started going actually great. What was happening was uh, we were putting out a lot of game content, but nobody could find Arcadium.com because we had no advertising, um, you know, budgets, no marketing. We were just, you know, my wife and I, a uh, two-person shop, just trying to make it happen. And literally one day, my mother-in-law always said this to me. She said, your luck can change with one phone call. Your luck can, and she kept saying this. And I was like, yeah, where's the phone call? Well, one day the phone rang. I pick up the phone. It's like, Kenny, this is Jeff from RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company. Do you have any poker games? And I said, yes, sir, we do. I had no poker games. But at the time, RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company was the biggest sponsor at the Winston Cup, a big racing um you know venue and they were not no longer allowed to um to do that so um they wanted to offer a, a multiplayer poker game and i told them we had poker software he asked for a proposal i wrote up a twenty-five thousand dollar proposal i showed it to my mentor and he said are you crazy this is one of the biggest companies in the world add a zero i said no way you're crazy two hundred and fifty thousand. he's add a zero I added a zero, sent it over, and they accepted the proposal. And that really put Arcadium on the map in terms of being able to generate some income. When that happened, when when they accept the proposal, what's going through uh, what's going through your mind? Oh, I mean, it was like the hallelujah dance. It was the whole thing. Uh, you know, I think I went to the ATM and took out all the money that I had, which was like forty bucks at the time. Uh, had a steak dinner, and it was like it was a moment that will just is is singed into the 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 crevices of my body. I love that. That's that's a great story. So that was really like, um, obviously not the start, but that's when things started climbing and you're like, we finally have a business here. Yeah. What we realized was Arcadium was born to be a B2C company, right? Direct to consumer. But we realized after making content for a couple of years that other businesses wanted our content. So we shifted the model to be, instead of going after consumer, which we wanted to do, we didn't have the budgets or brand name to do so. So we started providing games to companies that had uh, money, right? So we did licensing deals with the New York Post, with Reader's Digest, with TV Guide, with RJ Reynolds, and we were just making content and licensing it to them. And then this allowed the you know business to start producing some revenue. What other early hurdles did you guys face? And I'm sure there were a lot, but like what other ones come top of mind for you um, before you got that, that first big proposal done? The hurdles were, you know, I am my wife, Jessica, we had to do everything. So not only was I the senior system administrator and she was the web designer and the marketer and I was the coder, you know, we had to do all of it. So you know, I had servers running from my house, my apartment. Um, I had to figure out how to do. You guys worked from home? We worked out of my apartment for a, a number of years. Yep. That's crazy. Crazy. And you guys were dating. So you guys were together 24-7. We're still together 24-7. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. I love that. Were you in a studio, one bed? I was in a one bedroom apartment in the East Village on Ninth Street, and um, we were just jamming. We would, you know, put music on and just uh, we would just put dream boards together and and wish lists together. And we we did a lot of visualizations, and we we always acted like we were a big company, even when it was just the two of us. 
We always wanted to put process in place. We always wanted to think like a big company rather than thinking that the current moment defined who we were. Yeah. When did you guys first hire like the first team member? So the first, um, the first team member worked for free. Actually, that's not true. He worked for a Metro card. So my first hire <laughs> uh, came out of Princeton, wanted to be um, in the uh, games industry, was willing to work for just a Metro card. And he's still with the company today, uh, you know, 19 years later. Wow. I love that. So I want to talk about some other hurdles that I saw coming down a little bit more, uh, I guess, down the road. So in 2005, yeah. um, what, what year did you guys get the big proposal? Uh, that's around 2005, six, something like that. It, it's, you know, it's been a while. So it's all, they were the early years. Let's just Okay. So you opened up a gaming studio in, in the Ukraine to keep your costs low? Well, what it was, it wasn't that we, we wanted to do that. It was just Jess and myself. Um, we couldn't afford New York developers, just couldn't afford it. We had no VC money or seed money. We just had a little bit of uh, our 401k. So we used a site called Elance, which I think became Upwork. Um, and we posted, hey, we need a game created. And then international bidders would say, I'd do it for a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks. We started out in India working $2 an hour with developers there. They promised us the world and delivered us nothing. Um, and then we found a company in Ukraine that, you know, did $10 an hour work. This is back in, you know, 2003 or four and always, and said no to everything, but always delivered. And then we ended up acquiring that company for $90,000 to start up a studio there. So those were our, our first time kind of employees. How did you manage a company across the world? How do you guys do that? We, this is like before outsourcing, right? This is way long ago. So we had no idea what we were doing. And we lived on MSN Messenger and AOL Instant Messenger, just talking to them. And I went over there all the time. I went there physically all the time, not speaking any Russian, but learning it. And uh, those frequent visits really boosted our interactions and our collaboration. So frequent visits. I've been to Russia probably 50 times in uh, <laughs> 20 years. So in 2005, you guys had to move because of because of like the political climate in Russia. Is that right? You guys had to move the entire office? No, that came later on. So basically, um, we were in Ukraine in this little town of Simferopol. And um, in 2014, the Russians, because Simferopol lived, uh, was situated on the Black Sea, the Russians invaded that area and basically took over a part of Ukraine. They just took it over. And the rest of the world was like, how the hell can you just take over? It's like, you know, imagine, you know, the U.S. going to Toronto and say, we like Toronto. Now it's part of the <laughs> right? Couldn't happen. So the rest of the world said, uh, you can't do that, Putin. And now we're putting sanctions on you. And the sanctions that we're putting on you are in this town of Simferopol. So this town that nobody's ever heard of right, had 100 Arcadium employees. Remember, this is 2014, 10 years like after we established that first studio. So overnight, my, my company I had over there was illegal. And if I kept going, I would have went to jail or paid million dollars in fines, right, literally. So we had to move out of Ukraine 
into a non-sanctioned zone, which was in uh, Krasnodar, Russia. So deeper into Russia to get out of the sanction zone, which that was a hurdle that they don't teach you how to get out of in business school. It sounds like you handle like adversity quite well, but in that moment, like how do you deal with that? What's going through your mind? Like starting a business is obviously very difficult in and of itself, but now you're dealing with something in an entirely different country, different time zone. How did you navigate? I would say a very strong partnership with my wife and co-founder was the core of it all. We knew we can depend on each other. And when I had bad days, she had great days. When she had bad days, I had great days. So that balanced it out. But most importantly is that we had been building culture at Arcadium for the whole time. Every time we've put people over profits. So basically, when the time came where a hundred of our employees' jobs were in jeopardy, they stood up and they represented and they got us through a very hard time because we took care of them so well for so many years and put their lives and their families first. They stood up and said, listen, we got to move out of Simferopol. Here's the town we're going to. It's only a two-hour flight away. It's drivable. It has the infrastructure. It has the universities. And we can grow and thrive in this town. So 50 of our people said that they can't move. They weren't moving. They had family and kids and they couldn't do it. But the other 50 basically shepherded us through this transition. Uh, we didn't lose any accounts. We didn't lose any revenue. And we, we made that transition. So I think it's because we treated our employees so well and so fairly for so many years that they want to support the company and get us through. If I had to just will it myself, I would have stumbled. I read a lot about, you know, that you guys really take such good care of your employees, your team, really looking to help them develop outside of work and building a life of like work-life balance. I read that that's always been like a, a tremendous emphasis for you guys at Arcadium. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the journey, right? So I'm not, you know, do I want to be uh, sell the company for a billion dollars? Of course, that would be great. But you know what? I love the journey. That is where the learning happens. That's where the growth happens. So I want to um, enjoy it as we go. So we have three core values at Arcadium, right? They are fierce drive. We want people who want to win, right? And want to do great. Number two is positive energy. We believe positive energy feeds on itself and you don't want to be surrounded by sad sacks all the time. Um, and three is living a full life. We believe our employees to get the most value need to live well-balanced lives and explore their hobbies and go on vacations and not work nights and weekends. And we lead by example. So those three core values is what we hire for. And those people who really connect with those values usually thrive at Arcadium. I love that so much. I do think, like, I'm curious what, what you feel. New York City, it's one of those cities where, like, people love the the grind, the hustle. I'm personally a believer that, like, works, obviously, it's a, it's a big part of your life. You spend a tremendous amount of time building a career, doing work. And I really do believe you should pursue something that you truly love that makes you come alive. And, like, I, I guess I hope... And I'm not sure, like, I think New York City, there's still a big emphasis around like grind and hustle. But I hope as years go on, people start to recognize that work is like just one area of life. I'm curious, just like, you know, you're, you're obviously president of a big, a big company. You know, what's your take on the hustle and the grind? Like New York, San Francisco, it's sort of, 
it's very, I lived in Florida too. I worked down there for a while and the work-life balance, the people that were working there, the type of lives they were building were so different from so many of friends, friends I know that are in New York City. And it's just like work, 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 sleep for a few minutes back to work. Yeah. Listen, I put in my hours. Don't get me wrong, um, because I was building a business and I didn't have, you know, 100 people working for me at the time. So I put in the long days and the long nights, but I, I chose to do that. It wasn't that I had some overlord saying you have to work nights and weekends. Right. So um, I believe that uh, longer hours don't always produce better results. Right. You get tired when there's longer hours, you get burnt out. And the, the average Arcadium kind of career span is double the industry average, right? Because we don't burn people out, especially in game companies. There's this concept of crunching before you're releasing a game. You're working nonstop around the clock for months and months. And I just don't think it's sustainable. I am super proud when people have been with the company for four, five, 10, 15 years, because uh, they wouldn't stay if it wasn't providing a good value back to them. So um, I'd rather people work smarter than work longer. Makes complete sense. Let's talk a little bit about your personal life, I guess, outside of work. So we sort of covered the intricacies of your your business and building it and sort of that exciting moment when you first realized, hey, we have something here. Outside of work, what does life look like today for you? Oh, man, I'm a farmer right now. That's the truth. I am a full-fledged farmer. I am a, you know, I live uh, in Manhattan with my wife and three boys, uh, young young boys, and uh, we bought a farmhouse, uh, 80 acre farmhouse in the Catskills in a town called Calicoon about 10 years ago because I didn't want my boys growing up just in the concrete jungle. I wanted them to, you know, get lost in the woods and understand, you know, both aspects. So right now. I'm a big DIYer. Uh, I love building stuff, not only businesses, but I just finished building a chicken coop with my son. We have 10 chickens that are producing about six eggs a day, which is great. And I, I also just completed a, a, a monster endurance race. So I, uh, for the first six months of every year, I do not drink. I do not indulge in any extracurricular activities other than kind of training my mind and body to be the best form it can be. So on June 18th, I completed what's known as a Everesting race, which is took me 22 hours to climb uh, 29,029 feet, which is the equivalent of Mount Everest. And um, I did that in my backyard in the, in the, in the farm. I made 48 ascensions um, up and down a hill. Okay, a lot to dive in there. So, did you always have this dream of owning of owning like a farm, or like when did that come about? I always loved animals, and I knew that I loved riding bikes as a kid and playing outside. Um, and the city just doesn't afford those types of opportunities. So, my wife knew that in order for me not to drag her to the suburbs, which I would probably have done. Went because we had so many kids, she needed to preempt that strike by finding us a second kind of home that would, you know, scratch that itch without, you know, moving permanently out of the city because she was a city chick and uh, never wanted to leave. 
besides chickens, do you have any other animals on the farm? So I made a five-year plan, you know, um, several years ago. Chickens were, were always the first, um, and then we end with horses in, in three years. But it goes, uh, let me get this right, chickens, pigs, goats. Uh, my next-door neighbor has 300 cows, so we're not doing cow. And then horses is, is after. I actually heard that there's a shortage right now for chickens and chicken coops. Like the the sales for the actual building of the chicken coops are like through the roof through uh, this coronavirus. So I, I don't know if you if you saw I don't know if you experienced or heard any of that. Uh, I didn't. You know, I just went and made many trips to the local hardware store and I just hacked together a chicken coop, which, you know, I'm no carpenter, but, you know, I got it together and I think I can keep the coyote and, and fox out. For your farm with all those animals, what's the plan? Like the, are they going to be pets or are they going to be food? Obviously not the horse. Right now, the eggs we, you know, we eat for breakfast and in, in, in my wife's baking, we use them. But uh, don't really know. I take it one step at a time. I, I know I wanted to make it a full farm that, you know, had all the farm animals. But right now, the house was an old boarding house. It was built in the 18, uh, 1890s or something. And um, it does, it's a seasonal home. So it gets its water right from, um, you know, a, a creek on, on the property. So there's no well. There's also no heat. So uh, I need to figure out how to make it work when it's the cold uh, winter months. Um, so that is um, a big challenge for me to overcome right now. How do I get this place working in the winter? Yeah, it's beautiful there during during the winter as well. Do you yeah. taste um? I know this is nothing to do with what the show is about, but do you taste the difference in the eggs that they're your own eggs? I'll be honest. I want to say yes, but I don't. You know, but they do look different. They look the the yolk is like a beautiful orange, and it just makes me feel like I'm I'm doing good. I'm not buying big agriculture eggs, but honestly, I, my scrambled eggs or my Taylor ham bacon egg and cheese in the morning, uh, you know, taste the same. Any other additions to the farm outside of animals? Is, do you have any other plans? Obviously, besides figuring out how you're gonna maybe put some heat in there, do you have any other plans for building your farmhouse? Yeah, I love growing. Growing is like I start seeds in my apartment in Manhattan, literally, and that, that's in April. And then by the time the last frost passes, which is around you know late May, um, I bring them and transplant them up. So um, I I have tons of vegetables, um, and we make we we, we do cans of um, tomato sauce at the end of the season. So. Uh, my friends want me to put a, a greenhouse there so I can grow uh, marijuana once it becomes legal. Uh, <laughs> so there's, I just love growing. A lot of people are probably going to listen to this and be like, "Oh, you're the president of a big company. You obviously make the time for these for these things that you're curious about that you like." Not only where do you find the time, and I know we spoke a little bit about work life balance, but I'd say also, um, like, how do you learn? How do you learn all these things? You know, those are even building a chicken coop. How do you figure it out? How do you go about that process? Well, listen, I go for it. In life, I go for it, right? And that's just what it's about. So um, if there's a will, there's a way. And, um, you know, I my dad was an accountant, worked for Deloitte his entire career, one job. And he didn't teach me anything about building or using power tools and chainsaws or growing. You know, he taught me work ethic and he provided for his family. But YouTube's pretty amazing. You know, I can do electrical work, plumbing work. I can do carpentry. Um, and there's a lot of videos, but it's trial, trial and error as well. 
Yeah, so just trying trying things and seeing what works, what doesn't. Yeah, it's it's amazing what's there's so much on YouTube. I mean, you can really get an advanced degree. I feel online these days. You you can't complain that the information is not there for you. I mean, it is there in abundance, right? So I just take it take it uh, as it comes. So you know, you said you go for it. A lot of people they try things, they experiment. Let's say the experiment is a failed experiment. It doesn't work and they stop and maybe they go back to what they did before. They get um, discouraged. What do you think is the biggest reason why people fail in general? Uh, Failing is part of learning. And I will give myself two days max to be depressed about some failure. Two days. I I can just dig a little hole and hide in that hole and be upset and pissed and whatever I want for two days max. After that, I got to do a little postmortem. I got to learn from it and get back at it because there's some learning that I had in that failure. And trust me, with building stuff, I've failed so many times, but now I can, you know, I can frame a, a chicken coop in a pretty decent way, but it took me lots of failures to to learn that. But, you know, listen, resilience is a key trait of any entrepreneur or business owner. You have to be able to take your punches and you got to be able to get back and go after it again because life is just going to throw them at you. You know, there's a reason why I show my kids Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, <laughs> and 5, and Rocky Balboa because they need to understand that life is going to hit you, but you need to come back and, and get up from that hit. Is that where like the competitive this comes for you for wanting to do these things like uh, what it's called Everesting. Yeah, it's called Everesting. There's a guy, um, I, I have a lot of kind of virtual mentors. Tony Robbins is one of them. Jesse Itzler is another. Um, Jesse Itzler wrote a, a great book. Um, I think it's called Living with the Seal. Yeah, um, with David Goggins. Yeah, right. So it's his event. It's 29029 Everesting. And um, he goes for it too. And that inspired me to um, sign up for that event. But uh, there's just an internal fire inside of me. So you said the first six months of every year, you're sober. Yep. Are there any other like challenges or any other things you're doing on an annual basis where like, how long are you doing that system for? Like when did you start staying sober for the first six months? Yeah. So this is the fourth year. So the first year I did a half Ironman. The second year I did something called the Stubborn Mule, which is a 36-hour race um, in Wisconsin. Um, This year I did the Everest thing. Um, So basically it's six months training, big goal, and need to stay mentally sharp and physically sharp. Two months, enjoy the summer, let it rip. Two months training again. And then the last two months of the year, holiday season, let it rip. That for me is a system that works, that allows me to stay clean and sober for eight months out of the year and enjoy myself uh, in other ways for four months. And I think that system for me works. I cannot just say I'm going to you know, quit drinking for the rest of my life. Uh, that would just make me sad and depressed. But I know that I can't let it get out of control. Do you have like the big goal in mind for the following year or not yet? This year, it's going to be Everesting again, but the reason is the race was canceled, so I had to do it in my backyard. It was supposed to be in Sun Valley, Idaho, where you hike up uh, Baldy Mountain uh, 15 times. So that race, you know, I couldn't do it because of, uh, of COVID, so I just did the virtual event. So my tuition or application- Just like rolled over. Rolled over. At what point, like, were you always like, 
whether it gets canceled or not, I'm running, I'm doing this. I knew that with being quarantined and coronavirus, if I, when I found out the race was canceled, if I chose to say, oh, that's my excuse. And now I can start throwing back. And I knew that I would not be able to lead my company through a crisis. So I said, let me stay focused. I'm going to figure out how to do this virtually and not let something, some outside influence get in the way of my goals that I hold deeply personal. Yeah. Taking the lessons from those hard experiences and applying it to other areas of your life as well. I'm, I'm scheduled to run the New York marathon for the second time. This, this upcoming year was already canceled, but I was like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to run regardless. So, um, yeah, if you're an entrepreneur and the first thing that comes in is a little bit of adversity and say like, yeah, I tried, but now I give up because this bad thing happened. You're never going to succeed in the long term. You can be like, okay, F you, I'm doing it anyway. Yeah. You need to commit to the goal. Yeah. What was Everest thing like in your backyard? Uh, it was like man versus himself, right? It was like, I had no, no spectators, no teammates, nobody cheering me on. It was just me like getting in my own head. And, um, it was tough, you know, it was like 20 plus hours of, you know, grueling, um, hiking. And what I did that really helped me is I made over 40 video messages during my hike to the people in my life that meant the most or inspired me the most. So all my best friends, my family, my wife, my kids, I basically call it a runner's high, but I went like totally crazy and just showed gratitude for those who have um, inspired me. And I sent them to all of these people during the race that took up a good four to six hours of my time, but it lit me up from inside to keep going. Mm, I'm sure that inspired you, but even more so probably inspired the people who uh, got those messages. Now, you know, things have settled down. I look at those videos. I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? Because some <laughs> of them brought me to tears. Some of them I was bringing up childhood <laughs> memories. And, and I was like, I must have been like, you know, in a crazy state. You were feeling it. You were feeling it. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, absolutely. Did did um did your kids, since you did it in your backyard, did your kids like, what did your kids, what did your wife say? You're you're going to climb this this mountain for the next twenty something hours. Yes, they were all super supportive, and they all committed to um, a certain number of ascents with me. So uh, I, I got eight ascents out of them, um, two each, and uh, we all did the final ascent together uh, as a family, which was really great. And somebody recently told me the greatest gift you can give your kids is just inspiration. And um, I think that um, I, I actually tried to manufacture that for them um, so that they see what hard work and commitment's all about. Mm, I love that. So your wife didn't turn to you and she, was, she wasn't like, oh, you're crazy going climbing that mountain for the next. She's like, go for it. She would rather me, you know, in amazing physical shape and mentally sharp than a drunken fool. I love that. Um, so what about two years from now? Do you have do you have any goals or not yet? Every year I look up, I ask, you know, my friends on social media if they heard of any races. Um, so I'm open for anything that you've heard of um, up for, you know, biking, swimming, running, anything endurance related. Got it. Very cool. In terms of just general goal setting, because it was cool to sort of see into your mind a little bit about how you think through um, doing like one big challenge, keeping your mind sharp. Do you have a process or a system in terms of how you goal set 
in other areas of your life. It doesn't need to be business business specific. Yeah, I like to merge them all together because I don't just think of myself as a businessman or a father or a husband, right? Um, I think of myself just as a human being. So I go at it and I work with a coach who actually helps me lay out a process for setting business goals, family goals, personal goals, and a time frame and having check-ins along the way. So I'm super appreciative of that process because I could have never invented it myself. And I need some external factor to help me with process to get it down. Because once it's on paper for me, it's go time, right? Yeah. If it's in my head, it's like, eh. But once I commit and it's on paper, I just figure out how to make it happen. How long have you been working with a coach for? Uh, probably 10 years. All of my top executives I've hired coaches for. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm um I'm a big advocate as well and a lot of people who I who I've had on here, I've had some coaches on here as well, but a lot of people who I've had on here have coaches in different areas of their life, not just business coaches or like career coaches, but also coaches just help maximize performance, etc. Is that something like I know this is going back a decade, but what made you want to get a coach and I guess I'm curious as to your own performance in your life as a whole? I'm assuming you did because you're doing it 10 years later, but did you see like a drastic difference? Yeah, I struggled a bunch um, after we we raised some VC investment. We raised 5 million in VC investment in 2012 or some 2013. And I struggled with, you know, I had built a business for about 10 years before having external institutional investors. And then that transition was, was tough for me. Um, so... I I started working with a coach and I just saw that they had a lot of tools in their, you know, tool chest to help me work through the things. I had to do the work, but they put process in place and that process allowed me to thrive because I'm not a process oriented guy. I'm just like a, a wild man. But once the process is uh, given to me, I can follow it, but I'm not going to come up with it by myself. And early on, the, the thing that resonated with me was so, somebody told me, you know, Michael Jordan, arguably one of the best basketball players of all time, had six different coaches. He had a free throw shooting coach. He had, you know, a passing coach. And like to be the best in the world, you can't just rely solely on yourself. You can just extract the value from others who have unique skill sets. So uh, if the best basketball player in the world has six coaches, I can certainly have one. Yeah, you you had mentioned Tony Robbins before, but um, it's crazy what some of, I mean, you see what some of these guys were really at the top, like elite, elite at what they do. I read a crazy article once about how much Tony Robbins spends on recovery and not just like um like massage, but also like cryo um all all the tools and the people and the the coach he's using just for recovery i'm a big boxing fan and i know in that world there's there's a lot of a lot of people in terms of like who's on your team they'll have a lot of people are working with hypnotists today to help them visualize a fight way before it happens they're working with a recovery coach they're working with a, a striking coach they're, so there's so many coaches that go into making that fighter really be elite elite at the top of their game Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing that, you know, um, is really important to know is uh, there are some bad coaches 
there's some bad coaches, but you know, just because you may have a bad experience with one doesn't mean you should give up the process. You should just work through until you find the one that you know really resonates with you. I, I went through many coaches that didn't work out. So I work with a coach now, and I interviewed a lot of coaches. And one of the pieces of feedback that they give that a few of them gave me is like, I highly recommend you go and speak to numerous coaches because a lot of coaches have different styles, different different ways they work with people, and um, you should see what what you think will at least work best for you. Yeah. And only when you're truly going through uh, a time of adversity will you see that coach kind of rise to the occasion. It's easy when things are going well and you just want to like up your game a little bit. But when you're going through something truly, truly challenging, you know, how they work with you and bring out the best in you and, and, and uh, you know, not allow you to wallow in pity. Awesome. So we can start to wrap wrap up the show. My podcast, Bits of Gold, it's all about facing adversity, building your dream life, something we spoke about in depth. Um, but with that being said, what would be your Bits of Gold on how to build a life you love, your dream life? I think it's just live by your rules, right? Live by your rules and follow your passions, right? I spent a lot of years trying to uh, fit the tech startup founder uh, role, Right. Because that was glorified and it was like, you know, in Silicon Valley and blah, blah, blah. And then I, I, I realized, you know what? F that. That's not me. Let me just be who I am. And once I made that commitment to just being authentically me and not trying to fit the mold of others, um, I just thrived. I just thrived. I ripped off, you know, the, the shell and just let it out there to be who I am and not being apologetic about it. Um, and that allowed me to kind of live my best life. I love that. Well, there you have it. Where, where can our listeners find you, connect with you, look up more on your company, et cetera? Sure. So you can go to our website, which is just arcadium.com. That's A-R-K-A-D-I-U-M. And you can just email me. I'm really good at responding just about everything that comes in. So it's just Kenny at arcadium.com. Happy to uh, connect with you. Awesome. Well, Kenny, thanks so much. Uh, I'm sure this will inspire many people. Appreciate it. All right. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Bits of Gold. If you liked that episode, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, share this episode with a friend, tag us on Instagram at bitsofgold underscore podcast. More to come this week. Thanks again for tuning in and have an amazing, amazing week. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 